0: The tools are really meant to encourage every single person who's maybe been sitting on the sidelines to rally and say, no, actually, uncertainty is something I could even get better at. And our tools, I feel like, can be implemented starting right now. They're not meant to throw people off.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Munchaus. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance. Exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, F- Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Nathan and Susanna Furr. Susanna is an entrepreneur, designer, art historian, and contrarian. She's got a clothing line inspired by intricate embroidery, the embroidery that Dutch women painstakingly put on their plain uniforms. And the details of that are often invisible to everybody but the wearer. She's recently started a bio-intensive garden as part of a Hope Accelerator in Normandy. And she and her husband, Nathan, have four children, and now live in France. Nathan's now the Professor of Strategy and Innovation at INSEAD in Paris. He's an expert in innovation and technology strategy. He's got a PhD from Stanford. talking to both of them about a new book that they've just published, but he's got some prior bestsellers, The Innovator's Method and Leading Transformation and Innovation Capital. He's got a new book out, The Upside of Uncertainty, which we're going to talk about today. He's had loads of articles published in Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Journal, Forbes Inc., and he's been nominated for the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award. And he's worked with leading companies that you'll know, like Google and Microsoft and Ing and Philips and others. So, a great conversation. So, the Fur family, there they are in the US. Nathan is a, a professor, kids are in high school why change anything? Well, up comes a job at INSEAD in Paris. And so they are faced with some uncertainty. They are faced with a difficult decision. They are, their perception of risk is challenged. And so Nathan has spent his academic life talking to organizations and helping organizations improve innovation and, and handle risk. Suzanne is an entrepreneur, and so one definition of entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs have a higher risk tolerance than those who are just employees. And so the book is a field guide, voyage of discovery. How is it that, as an individual, you can improve and train your risk tolerance and l- seek the uncertainty and seek the upside of uncertainty and... In doing that as individuals, how can we then impact organizations? Great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too.
0: Hi, I'm Susanna Furr, and I'm an entrepreneur and designer and co-author on the book, The Upside of Uncertainty with Nathan, who we've been married to for 26 years.
2: And I'm obviously Nathan. I'm a professor (laughs) at NCAD. I research and teach about innovation and technology change, and um, really this question of uncertainty is deeply tied to all of those topics. So we're excited to be here. Well,
1: it's great great to have you here. So what what was the genesis for this book then?
2: Really uh, different sources for, for the two of us. So for me, I've been interviewing innovators for the last 20 years. And one thing you see and you recognize right away is that We admire the new things they did, the new businesses, the opportunities, the change, the transformation. We love those things. But what we forget is that they all all those innovators had to first go through some really significant uncertainty to get to the thing we all admire. And so for me, I struggle with that. Like, so I wanted to learn from them. So how did you do it? How did you have the courage to step into the unknown? What did you do? What did you learn? How did you learn to get better at that? So you could get to possibilities so that I could get to possibilities. So that was what it was for me.
0: And for me I was saying all along Nathan we're doing uncertainty look keep keep doing this with me because I was finding that everything we really cared about in our lives were, were things that when we'd taken risk when we'd gone into the unknown and then thrived and and loved where we were and so I wanted to add that human element to the book. I wasn't joining Nathan on the on the initial interviews and then ultimately I realized okay we need to write to the human inside the manager. Uncertainty is such a personal it lands in our our physical body so we need to talk to the human inside all these people making decisions and and really encourage people hey it's a portal to possibility.
1: So Nathan you're you're an academic and you're recognizing in yourself that you'd like to embrace more uncertainty. And Susanna, you're like, you're an entrepreneur and you have spent your life embracing uncertainty. Have I, did I get that right?
2: Good summary, yeah. <laughs> but, but here's the thing as an academic, here's here's the funny thing. The great thing about being an academic who uh, sees the benefits of uncertainty and what I mean by, by the benefits. So listen, I want to acknowledge that there are downsides to uncertainty and uh, particularly the uncertainties we don't choose, the things that happen to us. So I wanna acknowledge that and, but but our thesis is you don't really need our help to, to know about those things. Um, what you need is our help to get through the uncertainties, whether they're uh, ones you need to step into, have the courage to try something new or whether it's something that happened to you. So the great thing about being an academic who feels it is I went out to all these literatures to say like, okay, so what do we know about how to get better? And it was very clear from you know, research in domains with names like ambiguity tolerance or uncertainty avoidance or resilience that people could get better. But I still found the answers really unsatisfying uh, and and the sense of unsatisfying in terms of how. Like I wanted practical tools for me. And so that was really the quest of this project that led to the upside of uncertainty is, okay, what are the tools? So like the, the underlying idea is familiar, but what I think we're hopefully adding is the assemblage of how.
1: And also, did you find when you went to speak to people, you know, so often there, there's, a, there's some great video, they talk to tennis players and they say, how do you do a backhand, you know, lob shot? And the tennis player and the coaches will tell you what they do. And then they look at the video and, And what they actually do is not what they think they do. So did you find people who embraced uncertainty, but they didn't know how or why? It was just that some people it's easier than others, that sort of that human feeling that Suzanne was talking about?
2: Well, I think the the secret that innovators have learned that we were hoping to convey is that they realize that all these, uh, the great things in their life only came after stepping to uncertainty. Or having uncertainty happen to them and say, well, how do I rethink and reinvent this? So that's like the secret they've learned. But you're right that sometimes they had a hard time really unpacking it. And a great example of that. So we came up with over 30 plus tools for navigating uncertainty. And, and they fall into four categories. Uh, very briefly, uh, reframing uh, uncertainty from something to fear to That other side of the coin, what's the possibility here? Number two, priming or preparing for uncertainty. Uh, Things you could do in advance to be more calm when it happens or when you step into it. Number three, do. There's ways to take action that lead to a greater probability of of a positive outcome or an outcome you would like uh, in uncertainty. And four, sustain. How do you sustain yourself through the challenging emotions? So a great example of that where what they say is a little different what what they do but has a lesson in it. Is in prime. So prime is about what are the actions we can take to be ready or to be calmer when uncertainty happens. And one thing we noticed that was really curious is when you talk to them about uncertainty, they would say some pretty, uh, you know, provocative things like "I love uncertainty" or "I eat uncertainty for breakfast." I mean, that kind of yeah, like super. And I was like, "Whoa, I'm not that." Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't, I, most of us don't. Like most of us are like, "I'm terrified of uncertainty." But here's the thing, this is where it's great to have some qualitative research skills because we would dig in deep and we would start questioning about their life and, and different pieces. What you found is although they said that on the front stage of their lives, and they did in fact embrace uncertainty like in like starting a new venture or leading some social change, on the back stage of their life, they had done some remarkable things to create certainty that balanced out the uncertainties they were facing in other areas. Let's give you some examples. So, uh, you know, one interviewee talked about, uh, you know, serial entrepreneur led when they self-disrupted themselves with Tinder. I mean, huge uncertainties on the front stage of his life. He's like, Oh yeah, I married my high school sweetheart and all my friends are from junior high and I want zero drama in my personal life. Uh, there were people who would like stay in the same hotel in the same room, the same hotel, when they traveled, they would uh, carry their breakfast with them. Uh, and, and it was even sometimes small things like, you know, when I know I have something hard, I like, you know, this was an American in this case, I get out my toast and my peanut butter and like that gives me uh, comfort. So what they did is they used, we called them uncertainty balancers and it's habits, routines, rituals, activities, relationships, even humor that create certainty in parts of your life that allow you to uh, kind of face the uncertainty that matters. And I think that's like really important too for people who uh, are, if you're just feeling a lot of uncertainty in your life, you're just like, there's way too much right now. We would really challenge you to say, what are those uncertainty balancers?
1: And so that whole uncertainty drives cognitive load and the whole Steve Jobs wear the same jumper every day just gives you capacity to overcome the load that uncertainty brings, which allows you to then embrace it rather than run away from it.
0: Yeah, we we sometimes say uncertainty balancers turn the temperature down. You know, it's, it's like you can take on in worthwhile uncertainty if you just are like automating your outfit instead of it causing you distress every day. But I would love to go back to your question about do these innovators do something different than what they say? And I think what we found more is they almost just didn't really know how to explain what they do because it has become so intuitive. They're so on the front line. They're doing it. And, you know, I think of some of the gentlemen we have had podcasts with, um, I can't remember his name right now, but he was saying, when people ask me, how do you do all the take on all this uncertainty and do all these startups and teach all this cool stuff? And he said, "I just want to hand him your book now because you've actually <laughs> been able to synthesize what I've been doing that I just didn't want to take the time to figure out." And so That was a real... um, Compliment. Yeah, for us. Another, Jerry Newman, who teaches, who's adjunct. He teaches
2: at Columbia. He teaches
0: entrepreneurship. And he loves uncertainty. And he calls it the moat, you know, that protects entrepreneurs, you know, that competitive advantage that they get there before other people because it's so uncertain and unknown and uncomfortable. And yet he was like, yeah, but how do we teach it? And so...
2: That was really the quest of the book was how do we we teach it? You know, it is obviously a challenging topic, right? So how do you put tools around for, for navigating something so ethereal. Ethereal, Yeah. Like, you know,
1: it's one of these things where I guess people sort of feel as though, well, you've either got it or you haven't. Right. And, and it's almost it because of its ethereal nature, it's like, there's not even, I'm not even going to try and learn to do this because it's just sort of who I am. You know, I, so you meet people who are miserable and, you know, there's probably no point in trying to get them to be happy or there's a great book called uh, I think it's the luck advantage anyway this guy studies lucky and unlucky people to see whether their perception of themselves being lucky or unlucky turns out to be true in reality and so and people have so much time so di- it's so difficult to change things which are much solider like getting fit or losing weight or you know it's um becoming more comfortable with uncertainty seems you know sort of almost out of reach
0: when you said that that part about maybe i'm just not it's not i'm not cut out for this it just breaks my heart i mean that's truly what we want to give any reader is that no we all can get better at this and we all are meant to do it you know there are possibilities waiting for every single person and so you know i think of my mom who's in her 70s when she read the book she said I wish I had longer to live because I feel really hopeful right now. I mean, she did cool stuff. She started a, a brick-and-mortar shop when she was in her 60s, and she'd never really had a career, so she was a brave person. But also the tools are really meant to encourage every single person who's maybe been sitting on the sidelines to say to rally and say, no, actually, uncertainty is something I could even get better at. And we our tools, I feel like, can be implemented starting right now. They're not meant to throw people off.
1: How much of... So I just think about my own sort of entrepreneurial journey. And I think, you know, my uncle was an entrepreneur, my mother was an entrepreneur, but my father wasn't, right? And so I just, I look to, you know, inspiration in childhood. How much of it do you think your initial thought pattern is a result of your nurture versus nature
2: so uh, one of my co-authors, who's an applied neuroscientist, and they study these things, um, you know, what the latest uh, in the field suggests is that everything in our life is a function of genes, experience, and learning. So the, everything, we, we come with some genetic predisposition. So we can acknowledge it. Some people do come with a genetic predisposition to with a little bit more comfort with uncertainty. But that's not all of it. It, it is also our experience. So being around people who show us models of being an entrepreneur will change your comfort level. But then lastly, learning and that we can learn to do this better. And one of the things I would highlight is for how long we, many of us perceive something like intelligence as a fixed attribute. And then, uh, you know, my colleague at Stanford, Carol Dweck, really challenged that with the growth mindset and showed that actually it was how you approach problems that determined whether your intelligence was fixed or not. And and I would say that the same thing. Thing with uncertainty because I, and I guess I say that with like personal confidence because I have struggled with and been terrified of uncertainty and I have seen my ability really rapidly increase and, and I would just say you know we live in a world where we take like a competence you know something we consider to be like a, a domain area or a practice area like say marketing or finance we take that as like Somehow that's reality. But like if you went back before the industrial revolution, everything we do in modern management, marketing, finance, operations, none of those disciplines existed because they didn't need them. Every business was a small business, except, except for church and state, but every business was a small business of 30 people or, or less in a workshop. You didn't need finance. You didn't need operations. But technology changed that world to create a landscape of massive businesses. And suddenly, we needed these new competencies to navigate that world. And, and what we're saying is, you know, there's always been uncertainty. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that uncertainty has really increased and we could talk about why and all that, but we're proposing, you need that competence in this world. And so we need to get serious about developing this because we could be better at it, but when we're not, when we have no tools, we fall into traps, we fall in. And I see this, I was just with a very large organization that was about to make the wrong decision. It was the low risk decision, but it was the wrong decision. And that's what happens is we fall into these traps thinking that low risk equals good when in fact, it's it's actually the wrong thing for what we're trying to accomplish. So so how do we develop this these tools?
1: You might feel as though I'm trying to not talk about the tools, but I'd, I, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to do that deliberately to try and make sure that I've got the context before before we dive in. So there's two other things that occur to me that might, uh, so my daughter, who's eight, right at the minute is has decided that anything that from her perspective feels uncertain, she's not going to do. And so I'm I'm hoping that there's some tools in there that might help me as a parent. And then I was talking to Nick Marks, who's the CEO of um, Friday Pulse, which is a tool that measures employee happiness. And we were talking about employee reluctance to go back to work. And he was talking about some research that shows that as human beings it is very difficult for us to get right how something will make us feel in the future. We sit here and we think about how something will make us feel. And then when we do it, how we feel is totally different. It's all, you know. So when, when that whole, right, you've been working at home for two years, right? You need to come back to the office. I don't want to go back to the office. Right. And there's a whole load of feelings. But when people go back to the office, actually, they're amazed. They're surprised by how great it was relative to how thought, how, how they thought it was. And so I'm thinking. Still, that's a challenge for many people trying to overcome things like that, because that's a sort of that in itself is sort of an uncertainty. You know, I'm here. I am. You're. You're now telling me to disrupt everything. What's in it for me? But that's then you're going from sort of feelings to logic, and there's and those two things aren't. You know, you can't overcome one with the other. So that was those two things. I'm. I'm hoping to as we get into the tools to see if there's anything in there that uh, either might help the audience or help me as a parent.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you know, just in terms of background, I mean, it's important to understand, again, when we go back to the recent studies in applied neuroscience, it is clear we are all wired by evolution to be afraid of uncertainty. And so when you think about, you know, your daughter, that's, that's a normal reaction The problem with that reaction is again, the context has changed on us, okay? So, you know, 100,000 years ago, like that, that reaction made, you know, that was a good evolutionary reaction to fear uncertainty because there weren't really a lot of benefits. There were, let's say the benefit to cost of going 100 miles away from home, trying, eating something new. Like the, There was a lot of things that would kill you. <laughs> you'd freeze to death, you'd get poisoned, you'd get eaten, all these things. And so, so, that, so we were wired to fear uncertainty. But what's changed is we don't live in that world anymore. You're not going to get poisoned, eaten, killed by stepping outside your door going 100 miles away, but there are now because technology has brought down the barriers to create, transact, interact. There are many more opportunities. And so it's like we've got this old evolutionary wiring. And so the mistake I see people make is they choose over and over and over for certainty. Now we all need some certainty in our life. We, We will concede that too much uncertainty is bad. But at some point, we'll see those decisions start to accumulate and our life will get incredibly boring. (laughs) <laughs> and it's true and one of my favorite interviews with was with the head of this major gambling organization we were talking about risk and uncertainty and he just laughed he was like oh you know what our we call our product in inside i, I call it reverse insurance because it's for people whose lives have become so boring they will pay us money for the chance that something new could happen and i think that's kind of a you know a nice kind of contrast and so and, and even in society we're kind of taught like the kind of ethical or moral decision is the low-risk decision. And sometimes it is, but not necessarily – it isn't always. Isn't well, I,
1: I often see that applied in, say, recruitment where you get, you know, five candidates and they hire the least worst candidate as opposed to the opposite. You know, that whole sort of dumbing down uh, happens uh, happens a lot inside organizations. Here's the candidate that nobody really didn't like.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose somebody who would push us and challenge yeah. us and yeah, bring in new ways of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see it all the time too. So it's fun that you brought that up. I see it. Other, I see it more in like technology decisions and strategic decisions and yeah, innovation. Decision. Well,
1: it's. Uh, I mean, lots of the clients that I work with are disruptors in their field, and so often when we are doing some work around value proposition or core customer de- development, one of the things we say is. I say, tell me about the person who's bought from you, right? And who's your competitor? And so they might be, you know, small business, big brand. The low risk decision for that company is always to take the big brand. The low risk decision is never to buy their solution. So we are looking for a buyer who is predisposed or has a higher risk tolerance than most of the buyers in the industry. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, let's work out what that looks like. So instead of saying we could sell to 2,000 buyers, it's like, okay, let's try How do we find the 200 buyers who have a higher risk profile, who are prepared to take the, the chance that our solution will propel their career and be the right one for the business, as opposed to the one, you know, that old IBM, nobody got fired for buying IBM. It's like, oh God, but nobody got promoted either. I mean, it didn't make anybody's career ever. It was just, it was just the low risk beige answer.
0: I
2: love that. That's very well said.
0: You know, I'd love to go back to that second part of your question about how our feelings often so are not what ends up happening if we actually take the risk or, or go back to it. And, you know, the research I love on that is Martin Seligman's, you know, around learned helplessness. Really what he found is that we have these negative, these beliefs that we carry around that we really live as if they are fact and how we can learn to dispute, he says, these beliefs and really go in for figuring out ways to just go with it with more learned optimism. And again, it's learned because we can. we, We often try to say, oh, you're just a pessimist or an optimist. But he says, no, they're learned explanatory styles. You know, optimists see things as not being a personal thing. They see them as happening just once. They don't see it as now I'm a loser forever, whereas pessimists tend to do the opposite. And I think I even think of your daughter, you know, for her, it's going to be something where you can get her curious about uncertainty by talking her through some of the tools we can go into, but just where it, it, expand, it can expand her world to see how taking a little risk might get her some really cool outcomes that she's not thinking about, like the adjacent possible or being an infinite game player instead of wanting to control and manage everything. Oh, t- t-
1: t- totally. I mean, I'm. she said, I don't want to do that. And I'm going, oh God, no, you know, just you know, no, you, ah, so frustrating. So let's dive into some of the tools then. Let's, you said that they fall into sort of four buckets. Do you have some favorites or are there some that are easier for people to get their heads around? What's the best way to try and step through some of some of these?
0: I think the best place to start always is that first category, which is kind of at that northern end of the, of the first aid cross for uncertainty. And it's really about reframing. We've talked a lot about it, but how powerful it is to change in a view of uncertainty is bad and to be avoided at all costs to one of, wow, uncertainty is just the doorway to possibility and I can get better at it. It's going to be where all the evolution and transformation comes from that's going to make me happy. And even reframing, you can start getting curious about it by saying, is there really anything in my life that I love and adore and cherish that didn't have uncertainty at some point along the way to, to making it part of my life? And so reframing, tools they're all about finding ways to embrace uncertainty to see it as possibility and also to start expanding the opportunities out there because sometimes people that are like excited about uncertainty they still keep kind of managing the way they go forward and so some of the tools like we can talk about an adjacent possible as a reframe is one where you're really we're wanting you to look at what is maybe hovering that would never be chosen because if you're just going at uncertainty kind of still as like a tactical like I will manage and crush this uncertainty so yeah adjacent possible is this the opposite of
1: planning or and is always what you're talking about there if you have a plan and you follow the plan too rigorously that means that you discount this sort of adjacent possible
0: yeah we love planning is good I mean in fact you know our priming category is is really kind of a planning and preparing toolkit but I, yes, if you are going so doggedly and not looking at the periphery, you're not going to find as many options. And the adjacent possible is a is an idea taken from biology around evolution that there's these hovering possibilities. So feathers, which were usually used for at first warmth and and mating, ended up being something amazing for flight, or the jawbone of fish became our intricate, beautiful ears that can hear so well. So it's kind of coming from evolution, but an adjacent possible is something that is, I love how um, Steven Johnson talks about it. He says, it's a hovering shadowy future that it won't be found unless we're being a little bit more careful and cautious. Again, that probably sounds too hesitant, but moving forward, with this kind of excitement that maybe I don't know exactly what's there, but looking into it. So another example I could give is is a woman who started a company called the A-Link. And it's basically she was with her mother and her mother they passed someone in a wheelchair and another woman wearing a walk using a walker and she said, Over my dead body would I ever be caught dead using one of those. And and the daughter was so horrified and sad because she realized, oh my gosh, there's so much pain around this idea of something that actually is helping people. And my mom might need to use one of these. And so she started researching and realized, wow, you know, 60% of wheelchair users actually still have the use of their legs and mobility. And so she came up, if you look it up, A-Link, A-L-I-N-K, it's this beautiful kind of tricycle model that where the the user is able to sit up tall and be at the same eye level as as friends. And it's a beautiful example of something that wasn't really like so crazy revolutionary it was hovering it was you know there were already trikes no one had taken the thought of oh my gosh we need to give these people the use of their it, it's an active stance for people and, and it gives people their dignity back so but for kids I think of your daughter you know what if you could start helping or get curious about what are adjacent possibles that wouldn't feel too afraid scary for her you know
1: well it's funny because I, I I actually think that I've had some success sometimes by propelling her away from the thing that she doesn't want to be rather than trying to persuade her to move towards the thing that I think she would enjoy. And the thing is, every time she does something that initially she's afraid of, she has great fun. Just in her at the moment, there's just this, you know, she'll just say no, and then she'll start to tell you why she doesn't want to do it. And it's so, you know, we've just sort of used some tricks by saying, maybe this isn't for people who are as... Uh, this is for older children, mm. and she's like, "What do you mean, older children? I'm 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 eight. How how could this be for older?" And, and all of a sudden, she then consumes it as part of her perception of who she is, as opposed to this thing that she has decided because now she's grown up. She's she's so grown up. She's she has a choice. So her saying no to something is about her being you know exercising choice for her. I think so. What are the tools that have been? most useful for you then given that you were looking at these people who embrace change and going i want to be embrace more change so how have you gone about using some of these tools
2: yeah so i would say there's kind of two ways in which uh Uh, You know, which relate to the two kinds of uncertainty that uh, we try to address in this book. One is uh, the uncertainties you choose or you you face. Like for example, you have the choice to do something new, to start a new venture, to take a new job, to do a new geography, new whatever it may be. So you're going to choose whether you're going to step into the unknown or whether you're going to stay in the certain. And I'd say the other category is when uncertainty happens to you. you. You didn't choose anything, but like, you know, pandemic happens and, and whoa, like now I feel so uncertainty, so much uncertainty. So one category of tools I, I think is really helpful is this, uh, for the, you know, choosing uncertainty, a couple different ones. Um, one that I think I was thinking of is, um, actually I'm going to talk about one of the reframing ones, and then maybe I'll give you a prime one, but the, just very quickly, how do you make a decision? One of those hard decisions about doing something new. And we did this interview a million years ago with uh, Jeff Bezos back in the very beginning. And he he said something that I think kind of captures it. And then I want to expand on it. And that is, he talked about the decision to start amazon.com back in a period when the internet wasn't cool or interesting. It was like 1995. Very few people had a very limited number of people had the internet, had email, any of those things. The internet was this kind of sketchy wild west place. And he was working in New York City for one of the top hedge funds in the world, D.E. Shaw, and he had this idea about, you know, selling books on the internet. And he told his boss about it, D.E. Shaw, and his boss was like, well, it could be a good idea, but probably better for somebody who doesn't already have a really good job, you know, like, <laughs> why would you do that, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's like, that's like a great example of like a common Uh, decision. Like, I have a good situation. Why would I bother something new? Or I have a situation that at least is tolerable. And, And so he talked about how did he make that decision? And he said, he asked himself, if I project myself out to age 80, what will I regret? And he said, I knew then I would not regret trying and failing. But the one thing I would regret is never having tried. So I think in terms of like the stepping in the unknown, that's a great place to start. What I, will I regret? We, and this goes back to what we were chatting about earlier. We often choose the lowest risk decision, but that's not necessarily the right one. And so like this organization I was talking about, the lowest risk decision was, you know, stay with the technology solution we've chosen, we've invested in. But in the end, what would they regret? I know they would regret sticking with that in the long run of their strategy that they've chosen. Same thing is true in our lives, you know, and and I guess I would just add some nuance to that rule of thumb. And the first is uh, that from my field of entrepreneurship and innovation, one of the things we talk about is affordable losses. We want to do things that are, you know, we don't want to like bet everything, like our happiness, our health, our family, like that's not what we're talking about. On the other hand, we can also probably afford a loss much more than we realize. And the second thing we were kind of hinting and we were kind of talking around is oftentimes when you said that thing about people feel differently than they think they will, One of the things we often do in the face of uncertainty is we compare the comforts of our current situation to the discomforts of the uncertainty of the future situation. And I want to be very concrete about this. When we made the decision to move to France seven years ago, life was very comfortable. We had, you know, I was doing great at the university. I was going to have the job for life as a professor. We lived near family and we get this offer to to join INSEAD, which is this top business school, but way over in France, you know, different language. Uh, it was going to be lower paid, double the, uh, the publishing standard. so no guarantee that I was going to be safe. Uh, you know, our kids would have to change in high school. Some, one of them would have to change in high school. Uh, all these disruptions, you know, and so as soon as you frame it that way, it's terrifying. Why would you move to France? And, and I think the ways we made that decision and it became obvious is number one, this regret minimization. I actually remember I had a conversation with, uh, with my uh, grandmother who said something profound. She said, "Nathan, the way that parents teach their children to live their dreams, is by the parents living their dreams," and that was like that regret minimization moment because for me it helped clarify. I will regret not doing this.
0: Well, and think about it. We were worrying for them that they were going to hate it, but she reframed it as, "If you love it, and you show your kids like this is worth trying." Will they love it now? And it's true. They hated it for a year. They hated us. (laughs) And now they love us. Now every week, at least one or two of our kids is like, thank you so much for moving us over here. I love my life. And one who lives in the U.S. wants to get back. So it's like.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think, and I think about that comparing the uncertainties, you know, that the trap of comparing the comfortable certainty to the uncomfortable uncertainty. It's true. A lot of those things we feared, you know, initially I did make less money and the you know, the culture shock was massive and they hated, you know, the kids were horrified for a year, but actually the possibilities and what we should have been doing is comparing the current possibilities to the possibilities of this unknown thing. And so, so actually the possibilities that have come out of that move are massive. And so back when we were making that decision, compare, okay, I've got some comfortable certainties now. Let's not compare it to the the dangerous unknowns of that thing we're deciding about. Let's compare it also to the possibilities of that thing we're deciding about
1: well and also the thing you talked about earlier i can't remember quite what you called it but the the potential loss right you know so if we go to france and we hate it and we come back right so yes we'll have tried and failed but what will the cost be well it'll be a bit of a pain in the ass but nobody will have died but what i was sniggering to myself about is that this is obviously a decision that you two made together right And I was thinking as you were starting to talk, I was talking to somebody the other day, who would taken a pay cut for a new job that he loves. Now, and that's his feeling, right? His wife gets no upside from his pay cut because they haven't moved to France, right? And so she can't see the upside that he feels for his new job. She only sees the reduction in household income. And so that you know he's on that journey. But in the past, I've changed jobs, and you know, then it hasn't worked out. And of course, then the people around you go, told you so. And so, you know, it constantly there's a constant reinforcing if you do take a risk and and so that but I think the regret minimization is a really useful tool. I think that's that's really powerful to say if I don't do it, will I regret it? And also the the thing is, that's the a bit like going back to the office. You can see the downside of going back to the office, but you really can't see the upside because you don't know what that might be. So the upside for you in going to France must have been, you know, that's a leap. You can absolutely see what you're going to give up, but you don't know what you're going to get out the other side. And it's just that, okay, but what could go wrong? Let's dive in. Brilliant.
2: Yeah, and I would even challenge, by the way, you know i would challenge two things about folks who say well told you so when you tried a job and it didn't work number one i would say what did you learn when it didn't work because sometimes when we try things and it doesn't work we actually learn such incredibly valuable things so you know we have friends and acquaintances they go say do a phd program or they go do a new job and they're like actually i don't like this like learning that is incredibly valuable and we we have this myth, we talk about, we write about this optimization myth, this myth that there's some optimal path we could be on. And it's totally false. And and Randy Comisari, who's one of the folks we interviewed, he's you know, one of these um, you know, he's pioneers of Silicon Valley, very famous uh, investor now. He's like, the thing that differentiates Silicon Valley is our attitude towards failure. That's what it's about. We don't see it as failure. We see it as learning. And he said, yeah, I was part of a company called Go Computing. It was a massive, you know, multi-million dollar crater. It was an incredible failure. And he said, but the pioneers of the next generation, of the internet were all born out of that failure. And he said, you know, that's the difference. And so- Oh, look, I look at
1: those jobs that I've taken that didn't work out. And in the same circumstances, I'd do the same thing again. Because I think I think the decision, I, might, I was happy with my decision and it didn't work out, but, you know, I'm still here, not unhappy about any of those things you know what, there are some of those things that didn't work out. And if I'd done it differently, I could see how I would have been worse off or less happy. So just Mm -hmm. fine, happy.
0: To your friends, I would say who, you know, he's happier, but making less money. I don't know how long he's been in that new position, but it would seem like his wife at some point would, would get a benefit out of that more, that, that well being. You know, I hope that he could really be a different human to be around if it's really making a difference for him and that she would she would feel that upside.
1: I'll get him to slip his wife a copy of your book. <laughs> <laughs> but not listen to this
0: podcast. Who knows what the <laughs> yeah, who knows what the adjacent possible could be for her? Maybe he has a little bit more free time, maybe he's not working such slogging hours. Maybe she has a little bit of time to go do something she's interested uh. in.
1: No, she definitely. You definitely don't want to listen to this now because he's working longer hours. <laughs> oh no! But he's he's really enjoyed himself. Uh, anyway, Susanna, what's what's your favorite tool from the tool bag that you've created?
0: My favorite might be the lens of having playing an infinite game. So it's an idea from uh, New York University professor James Cars, who really wanted to to encourage people. Instead of playing the finite game where we're looking at the rules, roles, and boundaries as fixed and that the purpose of life is to win everything, what if we tried on the the lens of playing an infinite game, which is to keep the game in play? For the love of the game, you play with the excitement, even the curiosity of collaborating. Competitors, all of that end up being less fear-inducing because you're just playing and you're loving what you do. And it, it, it's just something that has helped me in parenting, in in working with Nathan on this book, and even designing the course we're doing. I keep thinking about, wow, what's even the purpose of the game? And people might be handing us a rule book, a playbook, a script so that we would win, but what even is that? And and is it is it happiness to doggedly pursue this kind of narrow metric of success? And so... I could elaborate, but I, I just, it, for me, it's really, it changed my, my daily life. Even.
2: I think a great example that, uh, that's hit the, you know, that's, that's in the modern discussion is Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia.
1: Just giving away his company.
2: Yeah. He, just yeah. last night. Just last night. Yeah. That's why I bring it up. But, but you look back before that, he really like, he saw the game, of what he was doing is like really infinite. Like not how do I extract as much value out this second and run away leaving like a lot of pollution and waste. He's like, how do I do what's right for for my customers and for the planet. And that led him, for example, to be one of the first to pioneer organic cotton in t-shirts. And when a downturn happened, he talked about how he was on this panel when this, it was, I think it was the 2008 financial crisis and like his competitors and everybody saying, oh, organic cotton's more expensive. You're gonna have to drop that. And he's like, no, like this is, this is what the game we're playing, and he said we actually ended up with the highest sales of all because you know people made different choices when they had limited income and they wanted you know to support our values and what we were about and and you know yeah he just gave away he just gave away a three billion dollar company to what to saying I want to show how a three billion dollar company can take its profits and can use that to fight climate change to fight all these problems that we've created by making lots of stuff and using lots of resources. And you just have to wonder like, you know, why do the resources uh, of organizations have to be dedicated to making a tiny handful of people excessively wealthy? Why can't, you know, like an infinite game, like, I mean, to be honest, that's a finite game that's going to end in some really bad ways based on history, based on the direction the planet's going. But then you get a Yvonne Chenard who says, you know what, let's use all these resources to like do the things we should be doing, to keep the game of life going, to save the places. We all go, you know, I, I don't, you know, we, this can become very political for people, but I would just reframe it as you all have a place on this earth you love and that you grew up, you went and visited as a kid, you, you know, or you step outside and you like having blue sky, not smog. And so how do we like protect the things we love is really the question. How do we keep that game going? I think that's a beautiful model of an infinite play approach to, to these things. Hey, they still have to make a profit. They still have to deliver great products for customers. You know, like they still do all the things we have to do, but they say, let well, you know, really let's challenge the purpose of the
1: game. Well, it's, as you were talking, I was thinking about on the podcast, I've interviewed a number of people in their 80s who are still working because they say their model says it's an infinite game, right? I love what I do, it keeps me sharp. I okay, look, I only do it I'm only working three days a week, but I'm really sad for the people who felt they had to retire because actually this was a job and they hated it so they couldn't they couldn't wait to give it up. And then they also sort of said, don't retire, don't retire. Because the moment you retire, your life is all, most, you know, often these guys have said to me, their friends talk about everything they did, not about all the things they're going to do. Mm. And that whole, you know, have work purpose, future keeps them young and sprightly. And that's infinite game rather than a, let's build enough wealth that I can stop doing this thing I've never really enjoyed doing. And, and spend the money instead. But as a result of writing this book, or, or just general, where, where you've got to in life, what is it you now know, each of you, that you wish you'd known earlier? Not with a sense of regret, but just a... Uh,
2: I think this book, The Upside of Uncertainty, is about something we all learn in the end. And at the end of life, when you look at people, what are the common regrets, the things they say they wish they'd done differently? It's always, I wish I spent more time with the people I love, and I wish I'd taken more risks. And I think what I've learned is that uncertainty and possibility really are two sides of the same coin. And even, uh, you know, really hard situations that happen to us have uh, possibilities that we can pull out and our chances of getting to those are so much better when when we apply the right tools, when we have some uncertainty competence and that you can build this to, so I would say that would, for me, would be, would be it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would say, you know, coming from someone who does love uncertainty and, and felt a natural inclination for it, I still, when things would threaten going wrong, like really wrong or I felt really responsible for something that was out of my control, I always had so much fear and and thought that I could have done something differently or better really kind of thinking I could have controlled it. And and ultimately, after writing this book and really spending time thinking about it and practicing, now I know I have so much less fear going into pretty much any arena with kids having hard things, with, with um, career things that I want to do. I'm currently starting a whole new bio-intensive um, gardening thing, and I'm really out of my element. But I have so much more excitement and curiosity and a different viewpoint of failure. If things go wrong, I'm like, cool. I now know what doesn't work. Let's try this. So way less fear. And I wish I would have had less stress about things going wrong because it would just, it helps you, you just pivot, you know, you just do something different.
1: As you were talking now, I'm I'm it's so often companies are struggling with, you know, how to manage innovation and you, and we've talked really here about at the personal level, where do we plug this in? Is it the, do you plug this in? Does the CEO have to be less happy? I mean, from a personal perspective, impact your own quality of life. But where do you, are these tools as applicable in those people driving innovation inside businesses, do you think? And how do you, can you apply these tools at scale inside a business?
2: absolutely. so um, we we believe, I mean first off, why does a lot of innovation get stuck not happen? because a lot of times the leaders are too afraid of doing something new. So they say they want something new, but when the moment there's a little bit of risk or uncertainty, they they want to shut it down, which again, it's so ironic because like it, uncertainty is the moat that protects something new. If there were no risk or uncertainty, your competitors would have grabbed it. It's just like, you know, so, um, but, but here's the thing. So we do believe organizations need to develop this competence to navigate this world of uncertainty. It does start at an individual level. And, and, you know, a leader who doesn't have this will have a really hard time because what they'll do is they'll sow all this kind of panic and distress uh, throughout the organization. So we wrote the book two individuals to, as Susanna would say, the person inside the leader, the person inside the manager. Because when we as an individual leader have that kind of calm and confidence, when we can reframe, we can be so much more powerful. And then we do see evidence that organizations do develop this skill. And, and using, you know, I would, again, go back to this first aid cross for uncertainty. We could translate that into an organizational setting. We've done workshops with organizations, help them build this. It's just that we don't have many models from the past of organizations. We have models of individuals, but we need to create the models, the training for, it, for organizations.
1: Other than the upside of uncertainty... available from all good booksellers um what else do you think people should read and it doesn't have to be about uncertainty this could be you know anything that you're enjoying now great books you know we've been talking about patagonia i still occasionally reread let my people go surfing i just think that's great i wish in fact as i was running a company i sort of got five years in i thought god i wish i'd known this wish i'd read this five years earlier what else you've got on your bookshelf that people should be reading
0: Oh, I have enjoyed The Third Plate by Dan Barber, the chef, uh, featured in one of the Chef's Table episodes. He's really calling for a new cuisine based on what's good for the soil and wanting to champion farmers and, yeah, nutrition, it turns out is what makes food taste really good. And nutrition only comes from the soil and the soil, we can regenerate our soils and it's it's beyond, you know, just putting some organic fertilizer on there. So that's a really cool book with great stories. And then I would say anything by Wendell Berry, the poet, novelist, but also essayist who, who brilliantly in the seventies was already seeing kind of the disasters of our of our current systems with just, we're so busy being experts and kind of focusing on one thing and not seeing the whole picture. So
2: I would um, say, I would encourage you to read anything that is not in your field because the essence of innovation is actually about recombining. So if you want to see things in clever new ways, you need to read things outside your domain. I would so recommend just as a fun, crazy, nutty read. I don't know if you'll get through it, but uh, finite and infinite games by James Karst because it's just one of those books you're like whoa wait a minute this person is thinking about the world so differently and and it does make you kind of ask some questions it's a tough tough read but it you know it's at the core of that idea so that's brilliant
1: yeah. and you've got a course to teach these tools is that how does that work is it synchronous asynchronous are you doing it in person
2: online what's the So what we did is we created a website called The Upside of Uncertainty. So just like the title of the book, The Upside of Uncertainty. And um, on it, we really tried to summarize all the tools to make them available to anybody, anytime. So it's not like you have to go buy the book. But, you know, it's, it's a you know, this, we said, this is a skill to develop. It's a competence to develop. So we created this, we're creating, it's almost finished This asynchronous course where you can, you can check it out and you can basically go through the tools, go through the application or the practice and reflection. Cause it, it really, we write a tool and then we have all this reflection and practice activities to kind of like really start putting into use. And then hopefully we want to create community around that. And, and, you know, we'll have, you know, individual level workshops, but also we do organization workshops as well to help companies, you know, develop this competence in their leadership because it's—I mean—it just has such a profound impact on the organization, and and we saw this in, pandem- in the pandemic. We saw, I saw leaders frame this as the worst thing that's ever happened to us, and everybody in the organization just start, you know, gazing at their navels and worrying, and all the energy that could have gone into work and productive forward motion went into worry. And others who framed it as 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 their opportunity, their chance to to show their principles and be great. And those companies like fired up and did great things. Airbnb was a great example that Brian Chesky. said, this is our moment. This is our chance to show we're a great company. And they like, they did some really profound things for their community and made it through, you know, 80% of their business disappeared in eight weeks and they made it through in with flying colors.
1: I just think as you were talking right at the beginning about that, uh, this is a great opportunity. This is our moment. You know what? Even if you don't believe it, you, you know, it's like if you're the CEO, chief energy officer, you know, that sort of priming, just force yourself to believe it by repeating it. And it has a profound impact on yourself and people around you.
2: Yeah, I would say I would frame it a little differently. I would say what's happening to you is happening to you. And, and this is true at an individual level, at a CEO level, at a team level. What's, you got dealt a hand of cards. So what are you going to do? Are you going to spend your time uh, creating a lot of worry and anxiety around it? Or are you going to just say, what's the most positive thing? What's the best possibility we could pull out of that situation? That's really what all the tools and the upside of uncertainty are about is helping us say, okay, either I need to step into the unknown to to like reinvent or create possibility for myself and my company, or I got dealt a nasty hand of cards, now what?
1: Thank you very much, indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you both today. Thank Thank you. you.